Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the Supreme Court is about to announce a ruling on the federal carbon tax. The consequences are that if the federal government wins, then the provincial governments will either have to accept the federal carbon tax or come up with their own version of it. The Conservatives call for assurances that Canada will not be affected by potential vaccine export restrictions. The Prime Minister needs to explain why we don't have written assurances. The, the Prime Minister also needs to explain and be very clear to the provinces on whether or not these potential export ex restrictions from both the European Union and India will have impacts on provincial vaccine delivery schedules. And the Prime Minister says he doesn't need an election to get a mandate to implement the federal budget. We will continue to focus on the supports Canadian needs. While Conservative politicians continue to say we did too much too fast to support Canadians, we will continue to say we have your backs. It's Thursday, March 25th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. John, thank you for being with us. Morning, Mark. Let's talk about the expected Supreme Court ruling today on the carbon tax. Uh, what is at stake here for the federal government, for the provincial government, and for everyone else who has a position on this issue, especially in what could be an election year in this country? Yeah, well, the consequences are pretty far-reaching legally and politi politically. The, the provinces of... Alberta, Saskatchewan and, and Ontario have challenged the federal government's uh, carbon tax regime, claiming it's an area of provincial jurisdiction and that the federal government has no right to impose this backstop, whereby um, if provinces haven't got their own carbon pricing regime uh, that, that reaches a certain threshold, the federal carbon tax kicks in. You know, th this is... it's It's unclear how it's going to go. There's no uh, real predictor of how this, this might be, uh, the Supreme Court might judge this. We know that the, um, the appeal courts in Alberta and Saskatchewan and Ontario have all considered the case. The federal government won in Saskatchewan with a pretty close split of a five-judge panel and in Ontario, but they lost in Alberta. So it could be pretty tight. I mean, I do remember that the, uh, the federal government attempted to impose a securities regulator right across the, the, the country and the Supreme Court ruled that this was an area of provincial jurisdiction and, and the federal government couldn't do it. So the Supreme Court does have some track record in setting up for provincial rights. We will see later today how they, they, they rule on this but the consequences are that if the federal government wins then the provincial governments will either have to accept the federal carbon tax or come up with their own version of it. Which, which they may want to do because at the moment the billions of dollars that are raised in federal carbon tax come to Ottawa. And it may be that if they lose that uh, Ontario, for example, could turn around and say, well, you know, we don't want a carbon tax, but we are obliged to either go with the federal version or our own version, in which case we keep the revenues. Yeah. So that would seem to me to be a, a, a better option for, for the provinces if they lose. If they win... I guess the federal government has to go back to the to the drawing board. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean, I think, that the uh, the framework is completely uh, blown up. But uh, but clearly, if they can't put this this backstop in place, the federal government is going to have to come up with with some new regime. So there's a, there's a lot riding on this. 
And what about the political consequences? Because uh, it, it could be argued that if, if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the provinces, it's a loss for Justin Trudeau, but it brings back the issue of climate change and carbon pricing front and center in Canadian politics, which might on some level be a win for the Liberals, especially after what happened last weekend with the Conservative Convention and Aaron O'Toole. Right. So this it does put a spotlight on, on climate. And uh, obviously O'Toole last week said that, you know, the climate debate is uh, is over. And then his the next morning, his uh, membership, party membership, clearly disagreed by... Uh, by um, voting down a motion which said climate change is real and the Conservative Party will act. Uh, O'Toole has promised to repeal this carbon tax on consumers, but he's indicated he'll adopt some kind of pricing regime for large industrial emitters, which is only really a third of our emissions. You know, clearly, if you're going to uh, reach Paris targets, and, and O'Toole says he's going to, or the Conservative government would, you need to impact the other two-thirds. So, yeah, it... it um, it would not be great for the for the federal government to lose this case, but it it would bring the focus back to to uh, carbon pricing at a time when the opposition clearly does not want that to be the main focus of the next election. All right, let's turn to vaccines and to some of the questions that are arising around that. Uh, there, there's obviously a lot of. Uh, scrutiny on the different rules that are applying. Uh, the Prime Minister spoke with the leader of the European Union about uh, about whether or not Canada would be exempt from export controls. Um, there's a lot going on here, even as Canadians are making appointments and getting vaccinated. So what's the latest on that? Well, Justin Trudeau spoke to the European uh, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen last night. Um, talking about this, uh, the rollout of vaccine in Canada and Europe, um, the European Commission and the European Union has been upset at the fact that other countries are taking vaccine from Europe and are ahead of Europe when it comes to vaccinations per per capita. The corollary of that, obviously, is that the, the European Union might impose export controls. It's already introduced the legislation in which case the the, uh, supply of vaccine would dry up for those countries. Now, that's a very real threat, but I think it's more aimed at countries like the the UK and and, and other countries that are receiving vaccine from Europe than it is at Canada, because Canada, after that three-week supply disruption, is behind the EU in terms of uh, vaccinations per 100,000 of population. So while the note, the readout from the meeting last night did not say that Canada's supply of vaccine is secure. It did say that the two sides are cooperating closely on vaccine distribution. So it seems to me for now Canada is is okay because we're basically because our performance has been so bad that we are not ahead of the EU in, in terms of uh, vaccinations per head. I think if we um, if we started receiving tons of vaccine from uh, from India and the US and and, uh, and uh, South Korea, which is where some of our AstraZeneca vaccine is coming from, and we started overtaking Europe, that might be looked at it again. But um, but I think for now this we're okay with with Europe. Uh, India has actually put an export control on the the um, the amount of vaccine we're getting through the Serum Institute, which is which is a version of the the AstraZeneca vaccine. So we may see some uh, supplies from from India slowing. 
we're expecting a formal announcement on 1.5 million doses from the US. But again, there are politics at play. So I think from the, from, to sum up from the federal government's point of view, I mean, they have signed all these contracts giving us supply coming from all corners of the world. And they're just hoping that if some of that supply is affected by uh, political export controls, that other avenues are kept open. And, uh, you know, I think if, if all goes to plan, then the federal government and the Trudeau Liberals are, are sitting pretty. They've ordered so much vaccine that there should be enough for every Canadian. But if key sources are closed down, then the government is not out of the woods as far as uh, the political risks of its performance mm. on vaccines. All right, let's turn to the federal budget and the fact that the Prime Minister in an interview recently said that he doesn't need a mandate from an election because he already has one. Um, what are you seeing in terms of the political dynamics around this upcoming budget and the and the speculation, the inevitable speculation about whether it will trigger an election? Trudeau was a, had a, an interview with Peter Mansbridge, former host of the National, for uh, for Peter's podcast, and he said he was asked whether he needs an imp- uh, a mandate to implement this budget, and he said that he doesn't. Um, he said we got elected in 2019 with a mandate to do to do all sorts of things, and, and they didn't have a mandate when it came to renegotiating NAFTA when in the, after the 2015 election. So, so that's a no. Now, I think we should take that with a pinch of salt, um, given what's happening elsewhere. I mean, if I was planning for a uh, a spring spring election, I'd be doing exactly what. Uh, Justin Trudeau's government is doing right now, and that's spending money hither and thither on on all sorts of things, from electric cars to what else were they spending money on in Quebec? I mean, he, he seems to have been in Quebec quite a lot, handing out giant checks. Um, you know, he's, he's done certain things on uh, imposing sanctions on the Russians and the Chinese, to, seeming to stiffen our foreign policy spine. You know, the signs of a spring vote are everywhere. Now, you, you might be doing that as a contingency plan, but, you know, I think we're going to see a budget that is going to spend, spend, spend. We're already at $400 billion in deficit, and we and the finance minister has suggested that between 70 and $100 billion are going to be spent on deficit finance stimulus. Despite the fact we've got very strong job growth, and the fact that there's record saving in many households across the country. So, you know, the government may want to go now. It may want to go in the fall. I think they will go in one of those occasions because they don't want to go when they're starting to turn off the spending taps right. later in the fall when when the uh, income support programs run out. Of course, the, the trick is to force that election. Now, they, they would For the budget, they would need somebody, uh, they would need a number of the... the um, opposition parties to vote against them. And we know that the bloc, uh, that the NDP and the Tories are not particularly keen on an election right now. So that that route is does not look very promising to me. The route that looks promising is to say that we need a mandate to uh, to implement the budget, and, and uh, which makes Trudeau's response to Mansbridge a little bit confusing. But I think mm. that... Um, you know, he didn't. Uh, he didn't say it under oath, and it, <laughs> it's not as if uh, politicians haven't gone back on things they sure. said publicly before. All right, great stuff, John. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. We are going to make sure we address the needs 
of Canadians in 2021. And that means we're going to make some changes and have stronger and clearer policies. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Bob Hepburn argues Aaron O'Toole's so-called shift to the centre is just fake news. Hepburn writes, In reality, O'Toole is, so far at least, offering Canadians almost identical policies and solutions as Andrew Scheer campaigned on during the 2019 election. On the big issues, he is still appealing to the Tory base. In the run-up to the election, O'Toole needs to show Canadians he's a leader who inspires people. So far, he's failed to do that. At globalnews.ca, David Aiken argues the climate change gap between O'Toole and his party may be too much to overcome. Aiken writes, Aaron O'Toole says that he thinks climate change is real, but a significant number of his party members do not. Many non-conservative voters will believe that conservatives really do hold false and outrageous views on an issue which they feel is a priority. As Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet noted, there is an inconsistency that may be too much to overcome between O'Toole's message and the beliefs of too many in his own party. In the National Post, Terry Glavin argues Canada's record with China is one of national humiliation. Glavin writes, Now that Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig have been treated to one-day sham trials in China, it should not be too much to ask that Canadians confront the national humiliation attending to this turn of events. It will sting, though, especially for those among us who make a habit of favorably comparing Canada's world stage performance with that of the U.S., It should sting even more now that we are expected to boast that the U.S. President and Secretary of State will treat the cases of the two Michaels as though they were American citizens. Now here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. Canada's Auditor General will release her spring report today, and this one may be a blockbuster. CPAC's Martin Stringer explains. Mark, Auditor General's reports can often kick off a huge political debate. Probably the biggest one in recent history was former Auditor General Sheila Fraser's now famous report into what would become this sponsorship scandal back in the days of Jean Chrétien. But there again, Auditors General can also find that programs and their implementation have been handled well. That's why Karen Hogan's report today will be a big moment for the Trudeau government. She is reporting on the central focus of the government's activities over the past year, its response to the pandemic. She will look at the almost $80 billion CERB program, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, and whether it was well designed, well implemented, and how well it served its purpose of helping millions of Canadians. Ms. Horgan will also ask the same questions of the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, a program which had much less uptake and arguably much less success. And, as if that weren't enough, she will also report on the government's pandemic preparedness in the crucial areas of surveillance and border control measures. So with a possible federal election looming, you could not choose a better beginning for a report card on the Trudeau government. And Mark, as if that weren't enough, the Auditor General will also look at another key part of the government's agenda, the Investing in Canada Plan, the government's multi-billion dollar infrastructure program, whose rollout has already come in for multiple criticisms from the Parliamentary Budget Officer. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will speak with the President of the World Bank Group. He will also host a virtual meeting with Jewish community leaders. Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson and Innovation Minister François-Philippe Champagne will join top business executives to talk about innovation for Canada's growth and recovery. Labour Minister Philomena Tassi will make a virtual announcement about cultural infrastructure funding. 
and small business minister, Mary Ng, will take part virtually in the Women Entrepreneurship Conference. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, March 25th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.